Welcome to Rebalancing Act. We are Kieran and Leslie Ann, two lawyers and friends. We know that climate change is here, it's happening. We know we have to solve it. So we're getting together and telling you how to get there. And today we're gonna be starting our three part, three episode series on finance. And it's funny because finances, you know, it's been in the news a lot recently, I think. Money that it will take to, you know, to solve climate change. Money, how much do these environmental solutions cost? Where is that money going to come from? And the flip side of that, I think, is what kind of money are we currently spending on things that are actually really not in service of that goal? And even, you know, I'll go so far as to say that funding in fossil fuels, for example, that's actually taking us farther away from our climate goals. And an interesting way to look at that is through the divestment movement. So today we're gonna to talk about what the divestment movement is, how did it start, what are its goals, has it been successful? You know, what does it teach us about climate solutions and how we can all, you know, be a part of moving towards these climate solutions and away from fossil fuel funding. So are you ready, Leslie Ann? I am. I'm ready and excited. Excellent. You know, I'm actually glad that I Googled the definition of divestment because I think that it's useful. And sometimes I find I will talk about a concept without fully understanding what it is. So thank you, the dictionary. That was just like the entirety of my poli-sci degree, talking about things where I didn't really know if I knew what I was saying. Yeah, you're like, constructivism. Everything is constructed. It's true. That is what the definition is. (laughs) Oh, good, because I still don't know. Yeah. (laughs) So divestment is the process of selling subsidiary assets, investments, or divisions of a company in order to maximize the value of the parent company So it's the opposite of an investment. And, you know, you might think that's not enough of a definition. I still don't get it. So the internet tells me it's usually done when that subsidiary asset or division is not performing up to expectations. You know, we all know that people, stocks, you know, you buy stocks, so they go up. You sell stocks, so they go down. Makes sense. But in some cases, a company might also be forced to sell assets as the result of legal or regulatory action, or, and this is the key part here, you know, think of it in bold, to satisfy other strategic business, financial, social, or political goals. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, when people are selling those stocks, when they're divesting of those assets for social reasons. So divestment as a social process first began in response to apartheid in South Africa which, again, you know, always useful to have another definition. Beginning in 1948, the white apartheid government of South Africa forced the black majority to live as second-class citizens, condemned them to poverty, restricted in their freedoms by a system of legalized oppression. So in response to this happening, there was a lot of momentum by students in the United States for American companies to stop doing business in South Africa, you know, to divest of their investments in the country, to stop, in their view, legitimizing and propagating the system of oppression with their economics. 
So that was starting in the beginning of the 1980s, at the end of the 1970s. I think, you know, this realization that American corporations were investing in South Africa and also making money off of them. No, I was just really being thinking like, yeah, we were slowly realizing that corporations have an obscene amount of power. Yeah. I even think that that's, you know, that period of time is also when the dominance and when the influence and the size of corporations, even compared to today, like really started to grow a lot. Yeah. And I think that there are some, you know, is regulatory policy ever that interesting? Maybe not. But I also think that the conception of the corporation around that time also started to take off, that it's this vehicle for minimizing liability and maximizing profit. It is around the 70s and 80s that deregulation as a cultural force, and as a political force, was also coming into effect. So really, yes, a general realization that American corporations had a lot of power. So I guess, you know, you, the listener, might be wondering, did it work? And I think the answer is yes and no. You know, Leslie Ann, we know in political science that is something correlation or causation difficult. Politics, hard to boil down to a science because there are so many factors in play when political decisions are made that it's hard to say that one thing directly caused or influenced another. But in this case, Universities did divest, you know, targets and successes, including very prestigious universities, Yale, Harvard, the University of Toronto. And then subsequently, apartheid did end in the early 1990s, culminating with the formation of a new government in 94. I mean, you know, an interesting phenomenon. It did receive some criticism, which I think is valid. We're not going to try and say whether, you know, definitively this is our opinion on the divestment movement in this case. But I think, you know, it's it's good to think about and also potentially applicable in the context of fossil fuel divestment. Mm-hmm. First criticism being that divestment was actually bad for South Africa, including for the Black people that the movement was trying to help. You know, yeah, that divestment was actually kind of colonial, which makes sense to me. I think that that's valid. Not wrong. You know, the West just wielding its power all over the place to suit its own agenda, sometimes without consulting the people that it's reportedly trying to help. And the other, so, I mean, I think you got the substance of the movement being criticized and then also the results. The other argument being that it was a little bit symbolic at best. You know, that divestment, yeah, it made for good headlines, but did it actually do anything? And I think that this is really the question underlying divestment. You know, there's there's both questions underlying divest, subsequent divestment movements that have taken hold. But I think that one's particularly relevant to our discussion of climate change and of fossil fuel divestment. So now we come more to the present day. Circa 2012, Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org, climate activist, writer, he starts encouraging and advocating for, and really being an activist about, I'd say, um, he really is focusing on fossil fuel funding, which makes sense to me. How are we going to achieve climate targets if the government, you know, the government, yes, throws some funding into some things, but then at the same time, you're subsidizing fossil fuels, same thing for universities, same thing for banks. 
Absolutely. It's kind of crazy. So Bill McKibben, circa 2012, starts advocating for this, starts calling out these universities, because every single university has fossil fuels in its portfolio. And you might be thinking, banks we get, governments we get, why universities? They're small fry, you know, they're institutions of learning. But that's actually not quite true. Universities have a lot of money under their control. Harvard's endowment, you know, I will say I got several numbers, but let's say it's in the range of 40 to $52 billion as of 2021. Holy cow! Yeah, did you not know that? <laughs> I mean, like, I was thinking in the millions, not the billions. Oh, no. So this is higher than the annual GDP of about 100 countries, probably representing most of the world's population. Oh, my God. Harvard is really an investment firm that runs a little education business on the side. That, wow. <laughs> it is crazy, right? And I think Harvard's endowment is the largest, but yeah. when we're talking endowments for these big prestigious universities, they're, we're talking in the billions, not in the millions. And those are only going to grow because when you have that much money, it's actually really easy to make it grow. That whole needing capital to get more capital thing. Noted. And, you know, while we're talking about big numbers, I also want to pause for a moment and talk about the numbers of how much money is in the world and also how much money is needed to tackle climate change in an actual effective way. How are we going to get those climate solutions? So the world produces about 90 trillion dollars in GDP every year. And estimates of how much money is needed to solve climate change range from about 300 billion to 50 trillion over the next few decades, which is kind of a crazy range. I think at its heart, it's about having so much money. We need so much money is what you need to take yeah. away from that. You know, my brain can't process the difference between 300 billion and 50 trillion dollars, but it is large. I know that. And I would particularly estimate that being closer to the high end in the recent future, just because of how the cost of technologies and techniques work. Solar used to be extremely expensive, prohibitively so. It is now on its way to becoming maybe the cheapest technology in the world in terms of energy. And the same thing is true of a lot of other, a lot of other technologies that we need to stop climate change, even when we're not talking just about tech. You need a lot of money, for example, because we live in Toronto, where our transportation system is inadequate to meet the needs of the people that live here. Transportation products projects are so much less expensive in Europe because they've done more of them and because they've built up that institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. So our subway line is going to be much more expensive than it would be to build it in, for example, Germany, or France because they know how to do it because they've done it before. And it's not just about the materials. It's about, it's really about the project management. Like, Interesting. If you're doing something for the first time, we all know it's a lot harder than doing it for the 10th time or the 100th time. Yeah. And I did realize recently how much of an 
impact climate has on the ability and the types of transport infrastructure you can build. It's wild. In Medellin, Colombia, they have an incredible metro system. Cleaner, nicer, more on time than the TTC. And I think like a lot of that is it's basically all open air with just a roof over top Mm -hmm. because it doesn't get cold there and there's no snow and ice. Yeah. And it's way easier to keep things clean and I find keep people, you know, safe and under control in an environment where you're literally just half still outside. That's so interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think infrastructure is difficult. It requires a lot of challenges and it requires a lot of money, which really the 300 billion to 50 trillion over the next few decades, you know, the reason why we need at Harvard at U of T, at all these universities to start divesting from fossil fuels and start investing in climate solutions is because we need that money. We need private capital to start doing this as well as governments. And this really gets into my next point. And I think something that divestments as a movement is really aware of and tries to capture is that We're never going to solve climate change if we think of the issue as something separate and apart from the institutions within which we live our lives, because it's not charity. Charity is not going to rise to the level necessary to to address this issue. It's just, especially when you think of, you know, the leftovers that someone will charitably give after they've continue to participate potentially in institutions that aren't making the problem better and even potentially making it worse. Mm -hmm. We really need to not think of climate change as something that we can solve by donating to great organizations, donating to great activists. That stuff is important, but it's just, it's, it's pennies compared to the idea of trillions of dollars that we need to solve this issue. But You know, Canada has $1.5 trillion it produces in GDP every year. If that flow of money, of finance, is going to decarbonization, or at the very least is not going to actively stopping and hindering decarbonization, then I think that's, (laughs) you know, that is where we're talking. Leslie Ann, have you ever written a a grant for applying for um, money from the government for something that's related to a nonprofit? Yes. What was the realm yes, of have. money that you were applying for? Um, I think we were applying for like, at most like 30,000. Mm-hmm. Like not a ton, but not like an insubstantial amount. Absolutely. And it probably took a fair bit of work to apply for that as well. Oh, yeah. And they're also like sometimes a little bit of, you know, you're just throwing out all the applications hoping something sticks to somebody's mind Mm -hmm. absolutely yep (laughs) i just think thirty thousand is a lot of money but it's not in the same realm as a as um an endowment in the realm of billions and billions like it's just no i just think that gap really shows we can't do this off to the side of business operations it needs to be at the heart of it And it has to really be at the core of this business decision making. So. Absolutely. I think that that's what the climate divestment movement gets at. That if banks 
with their tons of money, if pension investment funds, if universities, if they're still investing in fossil fuels, what are, you know, we can't solve this problem without that divestment. Which I think, you know, it resonates with me. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I agree. Because, you know, as long as we're still making fossil fuels profitable at a large scale, and we do that by continuing to invest in them, because, you know, the goal of investing in something is that it generates value and you receive a, a benefit from your investment. As long as we keep doing that, we're not going to, no one's going to want to stop being in the fossil fuel industry because we're going to continue to want it to be profitable for our own sake. Absolutely. You are actively giving that business strength via economics. So there has been, you know, as, as goes the internet, as goes life, there has been discourse about the divestment movement. And I'll get into a discourse a little bit before I talk about what has happened to date, I think. You know, what has it worked? But the discourse... Ugh. I love me some discourse. Is that... Is this symbolic? Are not others just going to go buy these shares and potentially even get a deal? If Harvard divests, is... Someone else just not going to go scoop those up and maybe, you know, enjoy the benefits of that sweet fossil fuel money. And I think, I think there are two answers to this. I actually think the criticism is valid, too. Like, that makes sense to me. And you don't want to get too virtuous just via divestment alone. Like, we need more than that. Of course you do. You know, but we, we can hold complicated ideas in our head. I think that that's a fair thing to argue, but there have been two responses to it. The first is the importance of the symbolism that's associated with di the divestment movement. And I think Bill McKibben, who is really in some ways one of the many originators of this movement, talks about the point is to revoke the social license of these companies as much as it is to deprive them of money. And I found a really interesting article that I think put this better than I could. It called the divestment movement an example of what's called a radical flank actor. And it says that these actors are really good at shifting debates by increasing the legitimacy of the issue. So for example, by pressuring major universities to divest of their fossil fuel assets, we find that policy ideas about divestments, or even things that are related to divestment, like that, but go further, like a carbon tax, previously, which had been marginalized in the debate, oh, that's never going to happen. We're just not going to do it. People actually think, oh, well, if we did succeed at divesting, maybe we can actually succeed at those things as well. And oh, you know, as people have been advocating for divestment and for the reasons for which we're actually buying into this idea that we need to do something about it. What else can we do? Looks like potentially, you know, the article uses the example of a carbon tax, but I think there are many. Maybe we should actually consider supporting that as well. The, ar the article argues, and I feel compelled by the idea, that the Overton window is actually shifting in a good way. Yeah, I think the radical flank movement theory is is very, very valid because it's... <sighs> 
Because even if you're not getting divestment totally, if you're not getting everyone to buy in, you're changing the discourse for one. But also because I think even as, you know, you move closer and closer, you're starting to have folks divest. Sure, one or two divestments won't make a huge difference, but it does start to limit investment options. It does start, it can start to be felt by companies um, as this gains momentum. And so I think that not only does it have value in changing the conversation, but that's kind of like, at minimum, it has that value, but can also have more. Absolutely. And yeah, you know what, at this point, we shouldn't be trying to make money off of those companies. I think the moral argument to me is also compelling. Absolutely. So I think I think good news is that, um, you know, 350.org has helpfully provided me with a global fossil fuel divestment commitments database. And the number, the financial value of invest of divestment pledges made to date is almost $40 trillion, which is a lot. Holy shit. Yeah. And like the breakdown of it is really interesting too, actually. Um 15% educational institutions, like we've been talking about with, you know. U of T recently divest, decided to divest, so did Harvard, so did Oxford, which is interesting. And I think people really focus on universities because they are supposed to be places of higher learning and forward thinking. But yeah, and social institutions, not solely profit machines. Exactly. Though, turns out Harvard is just a private equity firm who runs a lot of education business on the side. <laughs> but Interestingly, also 35% of the institutions are faith-based organizations, which I thought was interesting. really interesting. 1% healthcare, 12% pension funds, 11% governments. Looks like we need to do better on the government side. Some banks. Okay. It's pretty diverse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, faith organizations do have a surprising amount of money, I find. Well, surprising to me as someone who is not involved with any faith organizations. I'm always surprised by how much money they have. And so I think that's that's a really interesting one that I would never have thought to kind of target for divestment. So that's really exciting. Me neither. The Ben and Jerry's Foundation, which honestly, Ben and Jerry's are social leaders in the community. It is, ex- it is crazy the extent to which they actually get it right. I know. To the extent that a corporation can. And like, you know what? I'm glad that Ben & Jerry's exists to make money. Like, I love their ice cream. Same. I guess like the next thing to think about, you know, it is working. It's happening. And I think it's interesting, like, because, you know, you also took corporate law. And it's just an interesting way to engage with corporations that are polluting which i think like kind of also shows the way that we are constrained from our engagements with getting corporations to act in the public interest yeah we really are i think especially the way i mean things are starting to shift now some corporations um the statutes that govern them are leaving more flexibility for considering beyond just strictly the shareholders but traditionally it's a corporation is supposed to act solely in the best interest of its shareholders. 
And and those they want profit. They want that money. Exactly. And it's so and so even when a company may want to do better, it can become really challenging to do so. Absolutely. I think is this, you know, this is going to be one one of many tools in the toolbox. I think there is some interesting shareholder activism happening, but it does show like we have to be strategic about how we think about incentivizing corporations because some incentives work, some incentives don't. You know, it doesn't work fines after the fact. Yes. You know, it doesn't work trying to hold people within the organization accountable because the whole point of the corporation is that you can't. Yeah. Can't pierce that corporate veil. Truly. It's very difficult. But I think I appreciate the creativity of the divestment movement in this sense because I think the people that thought of this idea are the ones that are like, this is one of the ways we actually can influence change. Totally. And I think it's, you know, so much of divestment campaigns that I'm familiar with at the university level are also public education campaigns around fossil fuels and climate change. And so you're starting conversations similar to the conversations we have here and we care so much about, even if there isn't in the end formal divestment. I hope that, you know, I think this is a great first step. I hope that a next step will be for universities to actually start investing in things that enable climate solutions, things that enable the green transition. I think that would be a really great next step. And I think we do see some of that on a small scale, but I really would love to see more of that because they have billions, apparently. (laughs) They have a lot of money. And that's never going to go away because you're just... You're just growing it. It's just like, growing. That number shocked me more than turning around and seeing a mouse on the desk. To put it in yeah. context. Also, see, that would have shocked me more. That <laughs> would have shocked me more. I would have found that very disconcerting. You handled it very low-key. He was kind of <laughs> cute. He has little tiny ears. The context being, we were recording and Leslie and saw a mouse on the desk. <laughs> Yes, yes. (laughs) I am sympathetic to the idea that these these climate solutions have to be profitable. And I think that's baseline true if we're going to do this. We're going to be successful. They have to be good solutions. I don't think that we can be asking. I mean, I think we can ask. I don't think that we can successfully ask Harvard University with its billions and billions of dollars to invest in things that aren't going to make it money because that's just not going to work. So that is the next no. trick. How do we make, and I think this is actually a big question in the world of climate finance. How do we make this non-volatile? How do we make this successful? Yeah. I do think non-subs, not continuing to subsidize fossil fuel, good first step, makes the market more competitive. Yeah. Which like, everyone wants a more competitive market, I thought, you know? You would think so. Isn't that how we're supposed to optimize the capitalism? The capitalism. It's true. (laughs) I also, another thing that I really appreciate about the divestment movement is how sustained it's been. I'm really impressed by, I think, the continuing and ongoing pressure that activists have successfully exerted on organizations. Because reading the letter from the University of Toronto, who very recently announced that it was going to divest from fossil fuels, 
you know, the letter spells out that they did it because people wouldn't stop asking them to do it. And so they finally saw the benefit of it. Like, that is the impression that I got is, you know? Yeah. These people aren't going to go away. And it seems like they make some good points. So maybe we should think about this. Other people are doing it too. <laughs> maybe we should also do this. Yeah. You really, you gotta love a sustained campaign. You do. Oh, that kind of rhymed. Sustained campaign. Sustained campaign. Sustained campaign. There you go. Good slogan. I agree. I really do. I will sustain my campaign to capture and re-release this mouse. Absolutely. And, you know, for listeners wondering who, what, you know, what can they do? I think it just shows the power, the divestment movement really shows the power of engaging with the institutions that you interact with and that you're a part of for change. And you don't have to do it in a way that is going to make you unsuccessful in your participation in these institutions, especially at this point. Like, I think it's a pretty mainstream request. But I think it shows the importance of, you know, maybe you're not going to join a divestment campaign at a university, but you actually can join one at your work. You can start these conversations. I also think it shows that people think of activism as protesting on the streets, and that is obviously one part of it. But a lot of these conversations happen in boardrooms. They happened at the professor level, they happened at the student level, they happened at the administrator level in the case of universities. Like, you can be an activist in a way that works for you and still still actually make change. Absolutely. And I mean, there's even just voicing questions about it when you're looking at, you know, working somewhere new or you're moving to a new bank or you're looking at investing in something just asking these questions start putting into people's minds as something that they should be thinking about they hear the question once a year eh? who cares Mm -hmm. they hear the question once per day they're gonna start thinking seriously about it yep we gotta irritate people into that change it's my hobby and so even if you're not ready Mm yeah (laughs) that's true accurate yes it's all for good though and so even if you're not ready to you know commit a few hours a week to to you know joining a campaign in your workplace because we all have so many things on our plate even just you know starting to ask the questions or you know signing onto the email list so the campaign can say they have however many interested people in the workplace these are all little things you can be doing that do help move things along because it's a numbers game in a lot of ways It is. And the last thing I'll say about this is that I really think, so, you know, we say this all the time, so easy to get overwhelmed by the problem, but you can engage with powerful solutions. And that's how 39.88 trillion approximately dollars have been divested. Snaps for that. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love that inspiring we should all be inspired oh this is such a feel-good episode yeah maybe that's why the mouse came to tune in he was just Mm -hmm. really into the conversation you know i need to go divest myself of my hunger for lunch soon but (laughs) 
If you enjoyed today's episode and are curious about learning more about the other aspects of green finance, climate, how does it relate to money? So many ways. We're going to be talking in a couple of weeks about personal finance because I think there are conversations to be had there. And then after that, we are going to have a conversation with Pete, who works at Manifest Climate, which is a company that's working to help other companies quantify and solve their own carbon emissions. So we will see you then. In the meantime, if you miss us, you can find us out on Instagram at, at rebalancingact, at Twitter at rebalancingact underscore, at our website rebalancingact.ca. See you soon.